Well, it is good to be back. I was gone the last couple of weeks as we were doing post pastor uh, swap uh, for two weeks. And so I got to go to Nelson and I got to go all the way to Balfour and uh, now I'm back here. I really missed you guys though. I, uh, we got a good church and good people here. So thank you for being so awesome. Uh, yeah, thank you. Yeah. Um, just want to highlight Prayer Summit this Thursday. Once a month we do this. Uh, Thursday night from 7 to 9 o'clock. Uh, we have the worship team here and we do a number of worship uh, songs and we spend time hearing God and praying and uh, ministering to each other and it's just a good night to connect uh, with God and with each other and uh, this is one of the most important nights of the church um, to gather together to worship and pray is one of the most important things we can be doing as the body of Christ and so uh, we've had, had good groups out and so if you are interested come out uh, this Thursday from 7 to 9. Uh, you don't have to be someone who oh, prays out loud. You can just be there and pray along with us and worship along uh, with us as well. So that's coming up uh, this Thursday. All right, uh, let's pray. Uh, God, we pray for uh, the ministry of your Holy Spirit to be over this time. Uh, we ask that you would open our hearts, that you would speak to us on this uh, difficult issue that we're talking about today. Uh, God, I pray that you would protect us and keep us in your truth, and we pray this in Jesus' name, amen, amen. Well, over the last uh, few months, we've been talking about a lot of different things. We've talked about hearing God, and we've talked about pornography and some issues of the heart, and, uh, and there's kind of three kinds of messages. There's some messages that are more about the heart, and there's some messages that are more about the spirit and the soul. And there are some messages that are sort of more uh, mind messages. And whenever I share a message that's more about the heart, heart people are like, yeah. And then spirit people are like, yeah, when it's a spirit message. And this is going to be next two weeks a bit more of mind messages. So those of you who are a bit more theological, intellectual, you're going to be going, yeah. Uh, <laughs> others of you might be going like, ugh. Uh, but we're to love God with all our heart, soul, and mind. And so we need to make sure we're including all three things. And... Um, and uh, uh, we're going to be talking actually on the wrath of God, not because I necessarily picked this topic. It's not something that a pastor would normally pick. Uh, but we have been going through Ephesians, and uh, it talks about the wrath of God. And so uh, I don't want to jump over that because it's in the Bible. In fact, uh, talking about the wrath of God is an important thing uh, for a few reasons. Uh, number one, it's found a lot in the Bible. And if we are followers of Jesus... And Jesus is the one who gave authority over the Old Testament and has talked about it in the New Testament. We believe this book, and this book actually talks a lot about the wrath of God. And so we need to talk about it. Uh, secondly, the idea of wrath of God has to do with the character of God. Uh, what is God really like? Uh, what is his character like? Because the reality is we can only be as close to God as we trust his character. I mean, if you don't trust his character... If you don't trust who is is, you will never fully surrender yourself to him. And some people, because they have questions about his character, keep themselves away from God. And so again, this becomes an important issue. And it's also important is because if you spend any time outside the church, which I hope you do, talking to people who don't follow Jesus, this is one of the questions they ask. Well, what about the violence of the Old Testament? What about the wrath of God? What about hell? What about those things? It's a very common question. We ourselves sometimes struggle with those questions. And so this is an important uh, topic for us to 
uh, discuss. And uh, this week we're going to look sort of at the broader concept of the wrath of God. And next week we're actually going to talk about hell. So uh, welcome to the junction. (laughs) 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 Or happy spring break, I should say. I don't know. (laughs) But here is our text uh, we've been going through Ephesians verse by verse, uh, sometimes spending a lot of time on, a, on a, even a couple words. Um, we think we've been going through a couple years now. We're only in chapter 5, but here's our text. For this you can be sure. Uh, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. So he says, no immoral, impure, or greedy person uh, has any inheritance in the kingdom of God. Now, if you're honest with your heart for a moment, you, you realize that all of us, at times, we do those things. Uh, sometimes we're greedy. Sometimes we're not happy with what we have. We lust after someone else's car or their property, or we, we, we try to find our, our source of security and significance and money rather than in God. Sometimes we're greedy. Uh, Sometimes we will have impure motives or impure thoughts, and sometimes we do things or think things that maybe are immoral. I mean, this is not talking about anybody who ever does these things is automatically, you know, know, outcast of the kingdom. It talks about here about such a person being an idolater. That is someone who worships these things. It is someone whose life is centered around greed and centered around immorality, and that is... They, they look to greed and to money and to immorality as, as their God. And because they've rejected the God of love and chose the God of immorality and greed, the scriptures say that there's not going to be any inheritance for those people in the kingdom of God and Christ. And that brings up the whole idea of, of hell and those kinds of things. And we'll talk about that next week. But then he goes on and it says, Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of such things... God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with them. And that word in the Greek means to co-participate. It doesn't mean we don't hang around with those people because sometimes we're all, we are those people, right? It means uh, to co-participate, to engage in those activities of greed and immorality and, and those kinds of things. So it talks here about uh, God's wrath. And you see God's wrath talked about in the New Testament. You see it talked about in the Old Testament. Almost 200 times we see that, 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 that phrase or a similar phrase in the scripture. This is, this is a big topic. And uh, really, when it comes to views on God's wrath, there are sort of, these would be sort of uh, views outside of Christianity. These two extreme views. And sometimes when you chat with people about spirituality or uh, about God, you will see these issues come up. Uh, sometimes people will see God as an angry, monstrous God. Uh, they'll say, well, what about when God commands the Israelites to wipe out, you know, a, a village in the Old Testament or, you know, the Canaanites and this God is a monstrous, evil, angry God and he's just horrible. How could you ever worship a God like that? On the other extreme, there are people who say, uh, there's just no wrath in God. Uh, he, he never gets angry. He's just, he's just nice. He's just always nice. And uh, he, he's just, he's just nice. Uh, uh, but the problem with that is you've got to throw out half your Bible to actually believe that. Because, I mean, even in our text it says, Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things God's wrath comes. And it's, it's a form of deception if we just say, well, God, there's no wrath in, in God. 
but God's not this angry, monstrous, horrible uh, God. So, so, I mean, what, what is the answer to this question? And I'll tell you right off the bat, there is no perfect, easy, nice little answer to this question that's just like, you know, here are three points and go away and you're fine. And sometimes you meet people who come across with these very simple answers to these difficult questions, and you realize that they probably don't get it. Uh, it is a very complex issue, especially when you start thinking about the emotional implications of some of the scenes or uh, some of the violent acts in the Old Testament. But within the bo- uh, broad spectrum, the very broad spectrum of Christianity, there are uh, four views within Christianity. Some are obviously more popular than others. Uh, this is particularly attaining, uh, uh, pertaining to Old Testament violence in, in this, the, these four views, so they cross over to other forms of God's wrath. Uh, but there is the God-glorified view, and that is uh, that God is always glorified in everything he does, and God uh, preordains and predestines certain violent acts or violent people, and when God carries out his wrath upon those people, uh, it's about his glory. Because everything comes down to God's glory, and God is, is fully glorified even when he's pouring out wrath, and really it is all about his glory. That's the, the God-glorified view. And by the way, I'm way oversimplifying each of these views, and there's mixes between them. Uh, the second main view is a misunderstanding view, and, and it would go like this. Um, sometimes when we really desire something, we really, really, really want it, and we go pray, say, God, I really, really want this. Sometimes we hear God say something that he doesn't because we really, really want it. And so this view would say that because these cultures in the Old Testament were more sort of warrior cultures and everybody had their warrior God and uh, the Israelites wanted their warrior God that they thought they heard God say, destroy the Canaanites and destroy these groups when God really didn't say that. So somehow they misunderstood what God was saying. That's the misunderstanding view. Uh, There's the accommodation view. And this view would say that God was accommodating the people to where they're at that he met with them where they're at to bring them to sort of the, towards the new covenant to a higher standard of morality. And so this would be like us coming towards a, say we had a little six-month-old, even though we're kind of mature and we know how to talk English. When we go down and, and talk to a, a six-month-old, we, we go, you know, gaga, goo, goo, blah, 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 blah. you know, we, we kind of become like them to connect with them. And so this view would say that in order for God to connect with this culture, because the cultures were such warrior-type cultures, that he, in essence, had to, to sort of become like them and what they wanted in order to bring them to a higher place. And they would use scriptures such as uh, scriptures surrounding, say, the kings. Uh, God said, uh, I don't want an earthly king. But the people said, we want an earthly king. God says, no, I'm your king. No, the people said, we want an earthly king. And God accommodates. He says, okay. I will give you an earthly king. In fact, God actually gets behind the whole king system and actually chooses the first couple kings. It was not his will or desire, but because of the people wanting it, God accommodated them to sort of bring them to a higher place. This would be uh, similar with the temple. Uh, God never wanted a temple. Uh, He's kind of fine with the tabernacle, but David said, we're going to build you a temple. God says, I don't want a temple. uh, David says, we're going to build you a temple. God says, okay, let's build a temple. And uh, even though it wasn't his, 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 his original design and will, he actually gets behind the temple and gives David the plans for the temple. He actually accommodates the people in order to bring them to a higher level. And so they would say, 
God met the culture where they're at, starting with eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. He brings them towards the new covenant where Jesus says, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. But now I say, and it goes on to talk about loving your enemies. So it's, us, it's like us, you know, speaking to a one-year-old and accommodating them so we can eventually bring them to a place of adulthood. That is the accommodation view. And then there is the God-grieved view. Uh, that is that God does pour out wrath, and it is his, uh, not his ideal will, but he has to do it at times because of the evil of the culture. But whenever God has to pour out any kind of wrath, he is grieving. Uh, in essence, he is, he is crying as he is pouring out wrath on a people group or pouring out wrath on an individual or disciplining somebody. And so those are sort of the four main views uh, that you can wrestle with. And part of this message is not to answer all your questions because it'll be impossible. Uh, there have been numerous books written on this subject and scholarly papers and journals, and there's no way I could cover it in one message, let alone two or three or four or five. But I'm going to offer some thoughts to help you in your thinking, to maybe encourage you to do your study, talk amongst yourselves, and uh, discuss in terms of uh, how you see God's word working out in this matter. And we need to begin with a bit of a definition because uh, sometimes right away we just get off on the wrong foot. Because when we, at least, when, at least for me, when I hear that word wrath, I don't think of like a loving God. I, I, I think of someone like this, right? I think of someone who's just like exploding in anger and ready to punch you out because, you know, you cut them off in traffic or something. It's just the wrath, it's anger. And this becomes more difficult because... Uh, whether we like it or not, our experiences in life shape our theology more than we want to think. Uh, our experiences sh shape a lot of our theology. And if we have grown up in a home where our father or mother was very, very angry and, you know, threw stuff and then hit you or just abused you. I mean, this concept of wrath, just, it just because of your experience, is, is very, very, very uh, shaped differently than someone who maybe grew up in a, in a loving home where discipline was carried out in a loving way. And so our experience will shape our theology, and so we need to, to understand that. Uh, but when it comes to the Bible, uh, the word wrath is not ever used when it's coming from God in a sense of, of evil or irrational rational anger. Uh, J.R. Packer put it this way, uh, God's wrath in the Bible is never capricious, self-indulgent, irritable, mostly ignoble thing that human anger so often is. It is instead a right and necessary reaction to objective moral evil. Uh, God is perfectly holy. He is perfectly loving. There is no injustice or evil in him. And so when we talk biblically about the word wrath coming from God, uh, it's, it's a perfect, holy, just kind of wrath. And if you do an overview of God's wrath in the Bible, which uh, I did quickly this week, here are some sort of ways it's defined in the Bible. God's wrath is God's love and action against sin. Uh, God's wrath is God allowing people to reap what they sow. God's wrath is respecting people's choice when they turn away from him. Uh, God's wrath is God's ultimate judgment on all that is not good and loving. Now, I think when we do, uh, start this discussion, I think we have to start with Jesus. Uh, Jesus is our Lord and Savior. He is the one who came to reveal who God is. 
And I don't think we should start this discussion in the Old Testament. I think we start this discussion with Jesus. Jesus is the one who came to reveal to us who God actually is and what God is actually like. We see in John 14, this is Jesus saying, he says, If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. In other words, to know Jesus is to know God. To know Jesus and to look at Jesus is to see God and to see uh, what he is like. And so to know Jesus is, is to know God, is to know his character. Philip said, uh, Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, uh, don't you know me, Philip, even after I have been among you such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? And, and later Jesus says, when you see me, you are seeing the one who sent me. And so when we know Jesus, we, we know who God is. When we understand the character of Jesus, we understand the character of, of, of God. Uh, if we simply leave out Jesus out of the picture, we can get this weird concept of who God is. But any concept that leaves Jesus out of the picture does not give us a clear picture of who God actually is. In fact, uh, John chapter 1 says this. Uh, no one has ever seen God. You might say, well, well I thought like, Moses and uh, Elijah and Isaiah had these images of the glory of God. It's almost like they saw them. But John says, no one has ever seen God. He's speaking after the Old Testament. All those guys in the Old Testament, they have never, no one has ever seen God. I mean, we have stories of God and we have pictures of God, but no one's ever seen him. But then he goes on, but he says, but the unique one, talking about that's Jesus, who is himself God, in other words, Jesus is God, is near to the Father's heart, he has revealed God to us. And so the clearest revelation we have of God is found in Jesus. No one has seen God, but when we look at Jesus, we can say, now we've seen God. Now we understand who God is. In essence, I like this illustration of a blurry picture and a clear picture. I mean, we can look at that picture and say, you know, I really don't know who those people are. It's a little bit blurry. It can't quite make it out. But then we look at this picture and go, that's clear. And this is like it is. You read through the Old Testament, it's a bit of a blurry picture of who God is. We get a lot of information. It's, it's God's word. It's inspired. But, it's a bit, but then we come to Jesus, and all of a sudden it's like, ah, now we know who he is. Now we know his true character. Now uh, the image of God has been made clear. He has revealed God to us. And if we have any image of God in our mind that doesn't line up with Jesus then our image of God is probably not right. If it doesn't line up with Jesus, the one who actually revealed God to us and made God clear to us. Uh, Hebrews 1 said, In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets and the law and all those things at many times in various ways. But he's in these last days, that's starting with the resurrection of Jesus, he has spoken to us by his Son. The Son is the radiance of God's glory in the exact representation of his being. Jesus is not just like a part of God. Uh, he is a 100% God, fully God, fully man. He is an exact representation of his being. Again, to know Jesus, to look at Jesus, is to understand the character of God and who he actually is. And we go on to see the teachings of Jesus. Uh, Jesus said, I only do and I only speak what I hear the Father doing and saying to me. So when Jesus speaks, he's actually speaking out of the Father's heart. 
He is speaking out of God because he is God. And, and here are some of the, the things he said. And again, this is why this is a bit of a controversial issue. Because you look at some of the teachings of Jesus, and then you start reading in the Old Testament, it's like, uh, seems to be a little bit of a contrast here. Maybe the picture is blurry, but now it's clear, or whatever it might be. But here are some of the teachings of Jesus, which are coming out of the Father's heart, because Jesus came to reveal who God is. But to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. If someone slaps you on one cheek, turn to them the other also. If someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. Give to everyone who asks you, and if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies, do good to them, and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great. And then it says this, and you will be children of the Most High because He is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. And so here's Jesus revealing the heart of God. Jesus himself is God revealing the true character and true heart of God. And we go on through Jesus' ministry. We see at one time, it says, when the disciples James and John saw this, this is the, the Samaritans who said, we don't want you, Jesus. We don't want a part of you. They asked, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? Because Elijah did that in the Old Testament. They had precedent for it. But what did Jesus say? Oh, yeah, totally my will. Let's do it. But Jesus turned and rebuked them. And so there seems to be something in this idea that uh, the Bible says Moses brought in the law, but Jesus came and brought grace and truth. That there is this a bit of a shift from the Old Testament to the New Testament when Jesus says, you know, an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, but I say to you. Or you've heard it said, but I say to you. Uh, so here we see Jesus. Um, uh, we go on, John 13, we see Jesus washing the feet of the disciples. He's actually washing uh, Judas' feet, whom he knows is going to betray him. He washes Peter's feet, and he knows that Peter's going to betray him. And he goes on and says this, A new command I give you, love one another, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And, and then, of course, he goes into the Garden of Gethsemane, and they come to arrest Jesus, and this guy comes to arrest Jesus, and Peter cuts off his ear. And Jesus didn't say, yo, get him, wrath of God. He takes that ear and actually heals the ear. Interesting picture. And then, of course, Jesus goes to the cross, and he's hanging on the cross. And in this most amazing scene, it says, when they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there, along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. And Jesus says this, who is fully God who came to give us the clearest picture of who God is, he says this, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And so God in the flesh here is dying for his enemies, praying, Father, would you forgive them, for they don't know what they are doing. In fact, this image of Jesus on the cross is uh, one of the great definitions of who God is. In fact, we look at uh, John 4, 8, it says that God is love. That is his essence. 
end, we see the very definition of love is actually defined by Jesus hanging on a cross, dying for his enemies. As it says in 1 John 3, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and God is love. And we see this tremendous picture of love as Jesus is dying for his enemies, which includes you and I. God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we're still sinners, uh, while we're still his enemies. Uh, Jesus, again, taught us to love our enemies, to do good to them. And Jesus was actually living this out. As he's dying on the cross, he is loving his enemies. He's loving us as enemies. He's loving any enemy that would turn to him. He is doing the exact thing that he says. This is the character of God. This is the clearest image that we have as Jesus came to reveal it. And again, Jesus is not like just 90% God and there's this other part of God that we, you know. Colossians 2 says, we're in Christ all, not just some, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And so I think this is where the discussion needs to start. This is not where it ends, but it needs to start with who really is God? What is his character like? What is the, the best picture, the clearest image of who God is? And there's no clearer image of Jesus hanging on the cross. God is love. Their love is defined at the cross. And I think that's where we begin. Now, we don't need to question the character of God. Who really is God? Because the clearest image of the revealed God is found in Jesus Christ. But there's more to this. Because we also see, even in Jesus' life, we'll talk about this in a moment, that love at times, it seems, at least scripturally, requires a, a righteous anger or a righteous wrath. Uh, Chris Jamie uh, said this, God's judgment is not like man's judgment. It is not a suspension of his love, but an extension of his love. His justice is always righteous, so his judgment is always love. And again, we've got to start there because we know who Jesus is, and we know he's got this bubbling heart of love for his enemies. And so when we see God destroying enemies, we've got to go, well, what's going on there? I mean, God doesn't ever suspend his love. And so maybe there's more to the story than we sometimes see. Uh, we know this even in our own hearts, that there is, because we're created in the image of God, there is this desire in us to see justice. When something is really, really atrocious, there's something in us that goes, this needs to be made right. And we see some stories of people coming out of, uh, like, Nazi Germany in the concentration camps who say, my only hope of getting through this was to know that one day God is going to make this right. I mean, we can take a picture, uh, say, ISIS, a rec fairly recent picture anyways, is when they, just before they beheaded 21 uh, Christians just for their faith. And, of course, we know ISIS is going around uh, raping children and raping women and doing cutting and killing and doing all this horrible stuff. And we don't just sit back and go, that's nice. That's nice. Yeah, that's just nice. No, we're like, there's something that wants some righteous, not unrighteous, but righteous justice. And this is what is in God's heart. And what clouds us in thinking this is because we don't often see righteous justice. Again, our experience, more than you realize, shapes our theology. And if we have, have lots of experience in our life of unrighteous justice or unrighteous anger, this makes it really, really difficult, especially the emotional component of the wrath of God. But again, we don't start with our experience. We start with Jesus dying on a cross for his enemies. And then we see 
wrath coming out of God sometimes, and, and we got to conclude this is coming out of his love, though we may not understand the full picture of what is going on. We see even this in David. You remember the story, and God knows that we have this heart of this righteous anger. Remember when David uh, committed sin, uh, adultery with Bathsheba? And then uh, God sends Nathan the prophet to convict David. And Nathan the prophet doesn't go, David, you committed adultery, you're bad. Because often we don't get angry over our own sin, we get angry over other people's sin. So Nathan comes and he tells David a story. There's this rich man who has all the sheep, he's got lots of money, lots of sheep. And then there's this poor man who's only have one sheep, that's all he has. And that sheep is a pet and he feeds it and it comes into his house and he sleeps with the whatever. He just loves this little lamb. But the rich man, when he had a visitor... Didn't kill one of his own lambs for dinner. He went and took the only lamb that poor man had, and he took that and ate it. And David, it says, burned with anger. How dare that rich man take that poor man's only poor lamb? There's this idea of, of this desire for justice that we have. This idea for righteous uh, repayment, if you will. And that, of course, is not perfect in us, but it is perfect in God. We see Jesus. Even though he's dying for his enemies, teaching us to love, there are times when we see actually a righteous anger uh, coming out of Jesus. In Mark 11, Jesus entered, in, uh, entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling. He's just like overturning these things and chasing everybody out and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. He's like actually stopping people. And as he taught them, he said, it is, is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. This is kind of a righteous justice or a righteous anger coming from Jesus, who displayed a perfect love. And, uh, and I mean, there's various reasons why he did that. Once it was a sign of the Messiah who had cleansed the temple, other because he crowded out the court of the Gentiles, and this had to do with pushing out those who should be there, uh, be able to worship, and then they're... Um, uh, basically charging exorbitant amounts of money, and so this was a justice issue. But Jesus doesn't sit back and go, oh, it's all nice. This is nice. I don't have any wrath. This, this is nice. Everything's just nice. No, it's like there's something needs to be done here. We ultimately see this at the return of Christ in Revelation chapter 19. Now, whenever you read Revelation, you need to realize it's, it's apocryphal language, which is highly symbolic, highly figurative. We don't get it really these days because we don't even have such thing as apocryphal language anymore. Uh, but it says this. He, that's Jesus, is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on, a white, hor on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. This is not like some iron evil dictator scepter. The iron scepter means it can't be broken. His rule will never end. His rule can't be broken. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God. And there we see it, almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has the name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He's got it tattooed down his leg as he's coming in, right? And so here we see a picture of Jesus and the wrath of God. But we need to understand a couple things about this. I mean, He's coming into battle dripped in blood. I don't think this is the blood of his enemies because he's going into battle dipped in blood. All the other people following him are dressed in fine linen. They're not bloody. 
I believe this is, is the blood of Christ because the cross is foremost in Christ. The, the guy who died for his enemies on the cross is coming in to bring righteous judgment. And he's got a sharp sword, not to cut people's heads off, but it's coming out of his mouth. Again, very figurative. The sword is often the word of God. Uh, he brings in wrath not through violence and, and chopping people's heads off. It comes in through the power of his word. And the power of his crucified self. And so, but we still see this in Jesus. This idea of, of wrath uh, being poured out. In the Old Testament, we see that the wrath of God is often God's justice uh, on very horrible and violent acts. We see in, in Amos, it says, this is what the Lord says. For three sins of Ammon, even four, I will not relent, or I'm going to bring my wrath. Because he ripped open the pregnant women of Gilead in order to extend his borders. And so he sees these people ripping open pregnant women. And, and, and God says, I need to do something about this. Out of my love for mankind and humanity, this is a Christ-like love that is revealed in this certain way in the book of Amos. Now, we need to be really clear that this higher level of wrath has no place in our lives. And sadly, throughout church history, people have looked at some of the violent acts of the Old Testament and have used it to make excuses to kill other people, uh, to wipe out people that they're trying to evangelize because they don't want to turn and we're just going to kill them all. And, and There's a place for righteous anger. The Bible says we can be angry but do not sin. But when it comes to, like, terminating people and, like, taking out nations, that is not to be a part of us. Romans 12 says, do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will replace as the Lord. That we actually put this into the hands of God. Because we are not capable of seeing the whole picture. And I think this is why this issue is confusing as we read the Old Testament. Because we don't see, we don't live back then, we don't see the whole picture. And when we're trying to pour out wrath on someone, our neighbor or whatever, we don't know the whole picture. We don't know what they're dealing with. We don't know their story. We don't know their future. But there is one who knows their story. And there is one who knows their future. And there is one who knows the situation perfect. And that is God. And this is why we do not take revenge on people. This is why we deal with our anger quickly and give it over to Jesus. Because only he sees it perfectly. Only God can carry out this perfect, righteous wrath without sin. And we cannot confuse the way we do it and what God does it, because God does it differently. Okay, we got to keep going. Uh, God's wrath is often the pulling away of his presence. Uh, actually, most of the time, as I look at this, it seems that God's wrath is not like a direct pouring out of wrath of God. It's actually a pulling away of his presence. Uh, leaving people to be exposed to the enemy. Uh, leaving people to their own choice who don't want God. So we often see God's wrath being described as God hiding his face. Or God turning his back or pulling away. And there comes a time, because we know Jesus is wooing every single person. The Bible says that God desires that all men be saved. He loves every single person. And he's trying to bring them in. But if we keep pushing God away, there comes a time where God will say, Okay. And you know, when we remove ourselves from God's presence, there's an enemy out there whose job and desire is to kill, steal, and destroy. We know that when we pull ourselves from God's presence, there is this law in our universe which says, you reap what you sow. 
And a lot of times God's wrath in the Bible is simply people reaping what they sow, or it's a result of them pulling away from God. Now, there are times when God's wrath is, is obviously more direct. But we see this in Romans 1. It says, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. And then it goes on to say, Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their heart. That God's wrath has actually been revealed by him giving them over to their own choices. And again, there comes a time where we say, God, we don't want you. I want you out of my life. God eventually will say, okay. Because he's wired the idea of free will in, in, into our universe. Now, uh, God grieves when he pulls away wrath. Uh, pulls away, sorry, his presence or exercises wrath. And, and again, you may be cashing on that I come more from the God is grieved view when it comes to these issues. Uh, but I just see this all over the Bible. That whenever God has to pour his wrath, he is so patient, but when he has to, he is grieving. And I think we get an amazing picture of this in Luke 19. Luke 19, it says, But as he, that's Jesus, came closer to Jerusalem and saw the city ahead, he began to weep. How I wish today that you of all people would understand the way to peace. But now it is too late. And peace is hidden from your eyes. God was about to pull away his presence. Jesus, he sends Jesus to Jerusalem. He preaches there. He serves. He loves. He heals. He does everything to woo these people to himself. But they keep on rejecting him. And they keep on rejecting him. And so Jesus now says it's too late. He's going to pull his presence away. And, and God's wrath is going to re be revealed through him pulling away, but he's weeping. Jesus is weeping as his own wrath is about to be poured out on the city. Before long, your enemies, again, this is a pulling away of his presence, which allows his enemies to come in, which happens whenever we pull away from God, enemies come in. They will build ramparts against your walls and encircle you and, and close in on you from every side. They will crush you to the ground and your children with you. Your enemies will not leave a single stone in place because you did not recognize it when God visited you. Uh, same story in Matthew. Uh, Matthew adds this, this same story, Jesus weeping over Jerusalem. He's crying. And he's saying, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those who sent you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as hens gather her chicks under her wings, and you were not willing. Look, your house is left desolate to you. Here's a picture of Jesus. I just want to bring you in. I want to love you. I want to hold you. I want to save you. I want to protect you. But you're not willing. You keep pushing away. You keep running away. And there comes a time where I, in this idea of free will, will respect your free will. And his presence will be pulled away. And God's wrath is revealed by the pulling away of his presence. But he's weeping. And this is not just a New Testament concept, but all throughout the Old Testament. Uh, Ezekiel 33 as surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways. Why will you die, people of Israel? Or Ezekiel 18, why will you die, people of Israel? For I take no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the sovereign Lord. Repent and live. And so this idea that God is always calling, always wooing, but there comes a place when the people push long enough and, and turn, that God's wrath will be revealed. I think this is a super important text. Lamentations 3. Though he brings grief, he is as God will show compassion. 
So great is his unfailing love, for he does not willingly bring affliction or grief to anyone. I don't think it's ever, ever God's ideal will to pour out wrath on any person. It's not his ideal will. He's not willing that anyone should, but there comes a place if people are rebellious and push away and don't want God in their lives, there comes a place where God is like, I'm weeping over this, but I, I have to do this. Then we know this as parents in a very minor way. When you have to send your kid to the corner or discipline your kid or whatever. I mean, you're, you're as a parent, like, this hurts, but you know it's the right thing to do. And God does this on a larger scale because only God sees everything. Only God is perfectly able to decide, say, when to take a life or leave a life. And by the way, this does not mean that every earthquake or death or all those things are God's wrath. Uh, you can never come to that conclusion. But sometimes... They may be, and sometimes they are. All right, one more thing, and then we're done. Uh, God is incredibly patient before he pulls his presence away or exercises his wrath. Incredibly patient. In fact, way more patient than we ever realize. In fact, I think he's more patient than we would be. Even when it comes to some of the violence of the Old Testament, we see this incredibly patient God. You know, before the Israelites came in, and God uh, told them to destroy the Canaanites, at least some of them. Uh, it says in Genesis 15, in the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here. For the sin of the Amorites or the Canaanites has not yet reached its full measure. That God actually gave them 400 years to change. And I believe for 400 years, God is calling them and wooing them and saying, hey, let's, let's, let's work towards something. Let's give them 400 years before I believe God, with a tearful eye, sends in the Israelites to, uh, to destroy some of the cities. And again, that may be a bit of a theological answer, but it doesn't really help with the emotional issue. Because whenever you hear about like, cities being wiped out, that's, that's a whole different problem here, right? But we see, it's not God just like, in the, like, you know how we explode in anger when someone does something dumb in traffic or is driving too slow? Maybe that's just me. I don't know. <laughs> but I mean, God's not like exploding in anger. 400 years. And sometimes we can't even handle a few hours with somebody because they take us off. I mean, 400 years of patience. Uh, we see even when they do come into the city, when, when uh, God was like, we've got to destroy Jer Jericho. And by the way, these people were into child sacrifice and, and all kinds of horrible, horrible things. But anyone, because God wants all men to say, anyone who was willing, even just a little glimpse of goodness, God was willing to save them. We see that in Rahab. Now, she was a prostitute. Not the most moral person. God still saved her just because she uh, saves, protected a couple of, of the spies. This one little act of goodness was enough for God to say, okay, she and her whole family actually were spared in Jericho. We see when Sodom and Gomorrah, we see the wickedness of Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, Genesis 13, the people of Sodom were wicked and were sinning greatly against the Lord. Genesis 19, all the men from every part of the city of Sodom, both young and old, surrounded the house. They called to Lot. Where are the men? These are angels who look like guys. Uh, who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so that we may have sex with them. And they wanted to gang rape these angels. Very, very corrupt uh, place. That would Any visitor would come in, they just wanted to gang rape them. But you know, the patience of God over the city is, is quite incredible. Uh, the Lord said, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin is so grievous that God comes to Abraham and says, I, I need to destroy the city. 
And Abraham was like, well, I think there might be some good people in there. What if, if there are 50 in that, in that city, would you spare it? God says, I'll spare for 50. What about for 40? God says, I'll spare it for 40. Because if there are 10 in that whole city, if there are just 10 good people, 10 people with a hint of goodness in them, God says, I'll spare them. But there wasn't even 10. But still there were a few. There was Lot and some of his family. And God still goes in and rescues them before the wrath of God is poured out against the city. And so we see this idea that it's any, that all, he wants all men to be saved. He's constantly calling. And when he does have to pour out wrath, he is, is grieving. We see Jonah. Uh, the whole book of Jonah is God telling Jonah to go preach to the Ninevites. Who were the most brutal culture of the day. I mean, they would skin people alive. They would chop off heads and put them in pyramids outside their cities to scare people away. These were awful people. And this is why when God said to Jonah, go preach to them, Jonah was like, no way. I don't want these people to repent. They're horrible. I just want you to pour out your wrath on them. Get rid of them. God was like, no, I love people too much. So he sends Jonah into the city to call them to repentance and a last-ditch effort of God saying, would you turn to me? Would you repent? And they do. And this is why Jonah is so ticked. He's like, I wanted the wrath of God, not repentance, you know. Uh, but we see this throughout the Bible, this, this idea of God uh, being very, very patient. Last scripture here, and then we'll be done. Uh, it doesn't matter, even today, if you're like, you feel like, man, I deserve the wrath of God because I've been doing some horrible things. It doesn't matter where you are or what you've been involved in. If you turn to Jesus, he will welcome you with open arms. And we'll talk more about next week. The reality is if you don't, if you continually push yourself away and rebel against him and don't want to be a part of the kingdom of love and peace and goodness, there is coming a time when God's wrath will be revealed in terms of a heaven and a hell. But that's next week. We see in Luke 15, again, when Jesus speaks, he, this is God speaking. When Jesus speaks, this is the heart of God. And I think this text is a beautiful picture of the heart of God, even when it comes to people who are terribly rebellious. Uh, Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them, which was a very, very uh, horrible, mean, degrading thing to do to a father. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth and wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he, bega uh, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to feed uh, his, um, his fields to, the, uh, to feed the pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare, and here I am starving to death? I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. So here we have this guy who's lived in sin and shame and just horrible living. He's totally abused his father, treated him horrible. I mean, basically, when he's asking for his wealth, he's saying, I just want you dead. And now he decides, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go home. And this is a picture of all of us at one time. When we're rebelling against God and we decide, I need God in my life and I'm going to come home. And sometimes we feel that, you know, when I give my life to God, I repent and I come that, you know, I hear people say, man, I went to church and the roof didn't fall on my head. I guess God's wrath didn't get me yet. You know, like, God, like 
I mean, this is what he was thinking, that if I go home, I'm going to be disciplined. God's going to be so angry. He's going to just wipe me out, and I'm going to have to be a servant. But look at the father's heart. It says, while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The Bible says, there's more rejoicing over one sinner who repents than all the others who already have repented. I mean, God loves people. God is a God who's willing to die on the cross for even his worst enemies and cry out, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they do. That is the heart of God. And he's calling people and wooing us into his presence. But the reality is God is also a holy God. And if we continually push away and continue to say, God, I don't want you. I don't want anything to do with your heaven. I don't want anything to do with your kingdom. God eventually will say, okay. And that is the wrath of God. Uh, next week, we are going to talk about hell. So we'll see if anybody comes back. Uh, <laughs> let's pray. Uh, God, we pray you would help us to have uh, a good, fun, deep, challenging uh, theological discussions maybe this week over this subject. Uh, God, because there's a lot, so much more to this, and there's more complicated issues to this argument than what I laid out. So God, I pray you guide our conversations, that you would uh, bless us this week. But most of all, God, I pray that you would uh, cause us to be 100% faithful in who you are. God, that we would not doubt your character. Uh, God, that we would so trust you and how you've revealed yourself through Jesus Christ that we would never be afraid to surrender. God, that every aspect of our being, we would just lay down at your feet and say, God, take all of me. We want you in our lives. And so, Father, as we finish this service, the time of worship, I pray, God, you would meet us here. I pray, God, you would remind us of your forgiveness and your sweet love. I pray you God, might even remind us of your holiness, God, and, and even your righteous anger. God, I pray that your presence would be powerfully among us. In Jesus' name.